Now please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Old Testament prophet of Malachi once more. Today as we continue our studies through Malachi, we are on the fourth major section of this book. You may recall that Malachi is a book of disputations, disagreements between God and his people. And today in chapter 2, verse 17, we pick up on the fourth disputation out of six, uh, and we will read through the end of chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5, and that's on page 802, if you picked up an ESV on the way in. Today, a proclamation of the one who is to come. In all of these uh, disagreements, the Lord is finally beginning to reveal what is the answer uh, for the disputes, for the disagreements that he has with his people, and that is what we will see today in Malachi. And so before we read this word together, let us go to the Lord and pray that we, we would also have eyes uh, to see the one who came and was like a refiner's fire. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for this, your word, and for uh, the gift of your Holy Spirit, who you take your word and use it as a living and sharp sword to divide us and to show us our deepest needs and your deepest provision. Lord, we pray that as we read this word, you would cut your people to the quick, reveal our need for repentance and cleansing, but also show us the one whom you have given to save us from the judgment that is to come. We ask that you would help us to trust in him and build us up as your people. For your sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it, beginning to read in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. I wonder if you have uh, ever gotten something that you wanted, only to find that what you wanted wasn't quite what you were ready for. That's the experience of most new parents, at least at first. You spend those nine months waiting for your first child to be born dreaming, anticipating what it will be like to hold your own little bundle of giggles, and then 
the day comes and you realize that nothing that you've seen in anybody else's family, nothing that anyone else can tell you can prepare you for the reality of having your own child, being responsible for your own child. Sometimes it's better than you expected, thankfully. Sometimes there are those quiet moments uh, where the world seems to fade away, where you're sitting in the rocking chair and that baby in your arms is swaddled and drifting off to sleep, and it's the sweetest thing you could have imagined. And then there are the not-so-quiet moments, the moments where you wonder, what in the world have I gotten myself into? The moments where you begin frantically strategizing, how am I going to make it through 20 years with this tiny screaming person? Well, sometimes our expectations uh, don't line up with the reality. Maybe it was your experience with that job that you always wanted. You know, the career you trained for, studied for. Four years getting an undergraduate degree and then a master's to boot. And then finally you landed a job in that company that you thought would be the perfect fit for you. You could grow old in this career and this will be the job that you have been longing for. And six months into that job, you look up in your office and you take a breath and you go, is this what I wanted? Is this really what I expected it to be? Is this what I was hoping for? Well, in this next section of Malachi, the central tension seems to be the problem of unmet expectations. God's people, Judah, during the time of Malachi, they thought that life as God's people would be different somehow. Better, perhaps. They got the sense that there were still some wrinkles in the way that the world is ordered that they they expected God would have ironed out by now. And what they want, what they think they want, is for God just to show up and fix it already. That's what they expect. It's what they're waiting for. And God, in answering them, says that he's going to do just that. He's going to come. He himself will show up, but when he appears, it will not be as they expected. Now, as you're uh, looking at the ESV, if you have the English Standard Version in front of you, this section is separated into three paragraphs. It's a helpful division. We're going to use that division as we look at this passage. We're going to look at this passage in terms of sin and grace and judgment. And so first, that paragraph with uh, verse 17, the Lord exposes the sin of distrust. That's our first point today, the sin of distrust. The Lord says that his people are speaking wearisome words. They're making accusations about what God takes seriously and what he winks at. They say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them. They say, where is the God of justice. Probably the first thing that we need to notice about these accusations that are being made is that these are statements that represent evaluations of God drawn from human circumstances. This is a bottoms-up view of what the Creator is doing in the world. Where else could these statements have come from? This is not what God tells us 
about himself. God tells us in his word that he is perfectly holy, that he is perfectly just, that he is against all those workers of iniquity. We confessed it together today from Psalm 67, that for you judge the peoples with equity, you guide the nations upon the earth. That's the truth of who God is and what he's doing. And yet the people are saying, we don't know that we can trust that because what we're seeing around us doesn't align with what we expected from the God of justice. So So maybe he's not here. Well, the people Malachi preached to are not taking their cues about God from what God has said about himself. They are evaluating God's priorities according to their own experiences. We know that this is the case because in chapter 3, verse 14, we get further detail about what the kinds of things uh, were being said among the people. Chapter 3, verse 14, God speaks again. He says, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Do you hear the frustration in those words? What good is it, they say? What do we get out of this? Don't we deserve something better because we are God's people? This is the age-old problem of the prosperity of the wicked. Remember that Malachi is ministering, he is preaching to a post-exilic community, people who have come back, who are survivors out of the Babylonian exile, people who are children or maybe grandchildren of the people who told them about the glory days of the kingdom of Israel. This time when when the kingdom had a sense of self-rule and and self-determination and self-sufficiency and all of that is gone now. The Jewish kingdom is an occupied province. The days of plenty are grinding to a halt. Their once glorious temple is now so shabby that when it was rebuilt, the ones who remembered the first one wept at how small and insignificant it was. What's worse than all of that is that the nations who surround them worship vain idols. And they all seem to be doing much better than the ones who worship the living God. So not because of what God said, but because of what they saw, they began to distrust God's goodness. And the Lord says that when they do that, they accomplish the impossible. God says when they say those things, they weary the unweariable. For I, the Lord, do not grow faint, I do not grow weary, he tells us, and yet their words are a burden to him. It's interesting that in the scriptures, God never tells us that he is burdened by our prayers. He's never wearied by by the heartbreak cries that come from his children as we try to hold on to hope in a world that doesn't work out the way that we expected. The Lord can handle our frustrations. He can bear with our complaints, provided that we speak them to him in prayer. Think about the other Psalms, the many other places that we find examples of God's people trying to hold on to hope in the midst of hardship. Those are often the same psalms that show us examples of God's people making their complaints, airing their frustrations, but making them to the Lord, crying out with faith, seeking understanding. 
But as Peter Adam puts it, he says, the God who does not mind when we are address when excuse me, the God who does not mind when we address our complaints to him is wearied by our complaining about him. Those are two very different things. When we take our frustrations to the Lord in prayer, we are declaring at the outset by what we are doing that we trust that he is the one to answer these frustrations. We may not yet see how he answers. We may not understand how it is that he's working all things together for the good. But even when we're frustrated, when we take those things to the Lord, we're beginning by saying through prayer that he's the one who should be in charge. That he's the one who defines what is good and true and just and right in the world. When we speak our complaints about God, on the other hand, We are putting God and his righteousness on trial. That's the sin. At the heart of these accusations that are being made by the people. They had already made up their minds about what God was up to. They have tried the Lord and they have found his justice wanting. And so when they asked why God's justice was absent, they were essentially declaring that their sense of right and wrong, was far better than God's himself. And so it's not just the sin of doubt, is it? It's not just the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of disbelief, of distrusting the Lord. It is a rejection of God's ability to rule the creation that he has made. God says it was a sin that was a burden in his ears. It was, by the way, the same cynicism that our Lord and Savior encountered in his earthly ministry. You remember when he said in Matthew 17, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Do you hear the weariness there? It is, by the way, the same sin that Paul warns us about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, he says, and then follows up, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Spirit, he says. Do not burden the Lord. Do not make accusations against the judge of all the earth who always does right. There is a distrust that is wearisome to the Lord. And it takes root when we evaluate God's goodness from the ground up. When we allow our sinful expectations about God's justice to outpace our approach to God in humble prayer. So how does the Lord deal with these unrealistic expectations? This sin of distrust. What is God's answer to it? Well, his answer is far more gracious than his people could have expected. And so in chapter 3, the Lord reveals the grace of cleansing. This is our second point, the grace of cleansing. The people wondered when God was going to show up and take sin seriously already. They wondered when he was going to show up for justice. And in response, God promises a personal appearance. Behold, he says. The Hebrew actually says, behold me. Look at me, he says, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, they want to know where he is. He says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is 
coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now at first, that verse could seem a bit uh, confusing. It almost seems as though God is speaking of three distinct people. A messenger, then the Lord, then another messenger. But notice the parallel language in verse 1 that's used to refer to the Lord and the second messenger in that verse. The Lord is called the one whom you seek. The messenger of the covenant is called the one in whom you delight. And in both cases, it's told that that he is one who will come, but while the first messenger is one who is sent. That helps us to see uh, what God is showing us here, that this second messenger called the messenger of the covenant is actually the Lord himself. It's one person spoken of in two ways. In verse 1, there are only two people in mind. There is the forerunner, the messenger who comes first, and then there is the Lord who is the bringer of the covenant that God promised. The word in verse 1 is not Yahweh as we might expect. That's why it doesn't show up in those small capitals in your text. The word is Adonai. It's another title for God normally referring to God as king, God who reigns, God who rules over his people. And we're told that when he comes, he will show up in his temple to reign, to rule, to bring justice for his people. And that is what the people thought they were missing. They're flanked by evildoers on all sides. And yet if God would just show up, if he would just cast those scoundrels down, then they could... Uh, could enjoy the peace of being God's children and living with him. The way that God responds here, I think, shows us that all too often our expectations of the Lord are too small. The people wanted God to show up and to change their circumstances. They were looking for an outward salvation from the hand of God, but God's concern runs far deeper than our outward circumstances. And so the Lord first promises this messenger who will go before and will prepare the way. That's a common picture, something that happened with, uh, with important peoples and dignitaries in the ancient world. Isaiah picks up the picture. He, he describes it as every valley lifted up, every hill brought low, the rough places smoothed into a super highway for the God who is coming, who is visiting his people. And when we see this language of one coming to prepare the way, we don't have to wonder when was this fulfilled and who was the one that God was talking about. This is one of those verses that's picked up in the New Testament. In fact, it shows up on the lips of our Savior, and he applies this very verse to the ministry of John the Baptist. He is the one who was to come first. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7 Uh, Jesus is speaking. It says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see, he asks? A reed shaken by the wind? A man dressed, dressed in soft clothing? What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Then Jesus says, this is him of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your praise, your face, who will prepare the way for you. So Jesus applies Malachi 3 to the ministry of the John the Baptist. And when Jesus applies Malachi 3 to the ministry of John the Baptist, that is significant for at least two reasons. First, it is significant because it shows us that the preparation God had planned for his people is internal rather than external. God is coming. And the way must be prepared, but it has nothing to do with infrastructure. 
It has nothing to do with roads and highways. It has everything to do with hearts made ready to receive him through repentance. If there was a single word associated with John the Baptist, it was repentance. He went out into the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. He told the people who came to him to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He warned them that if they do not bear good fruit, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cast into the fire. He was a man of a singular passion. He was a preacher with one message, prepare the way of the Lord. Repent, 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 says John. And that means that when Jesus connects John's ministry to Malachi, he's showing us the kinds of blessing that God has in mind for his people. He's aiming at the hearts of people whose expectations of God were far too small. Oh, if the Lord would show up and give us justice and salvation from our enemies all around us, they were thinking. When will God change our circumstances? And the Lord is telling them, I'm not just coming to change your circumstances. I'm coming to deal with your sin. So Jesus applies Malachi to John the Baptist, and it shows us something about John and God's work through him. Far more importantly, far more significantly, when Jesus uh, connects Malachi 3 to John the Baptist, Jesus is telling us something significant about himself. John was the herald. He went out first to prepare the way for God's coming. Adonai, the Lord, the messenger of the covenant. And when Jesus showed up, John said, there he is. The one whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to untie. The one who was before me because he was uh, before me even though I came before him. John pointed to Jesus and says, he's the one who has to increase and I have to decrease. John pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Something John couldn't do. John preached repentance. John preached the sinfulness of sin. John warned everyone who heard him that sin had to be dealt with. You must turn and repent. John preached it till he was blue in the face, but he couldn't lift a finger to save the people who listened to him. He wasn't the one to purify them from their sins. He couldn't save them from the sin that was wrong on the inside. When Jesus said that John was the messenger who came before him, Jesus was declaring that he was the one who came to cleanse his people. You know what that means, don't you? It means you shouldn't believe the hype. All those skeptics who say that, you know, when you read the New Testament, Jesus never actually claims to be the Messiah. All those scholars who say, well, this idea of the deity of Christ, that really was just a myth that had developed for centuries after the time of Jesus and the apostles. Here it is. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, who was John? He's the one who prepared the way of the Lord. And guess what? Now I'm here. Jesus is declaring who he is. Behold, the king is coming, says the prophet. The son is coming into the world, and his name will be Adonai. His name will be Kurios. His name will be Christ and Messiah. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what this means when Jesus quotes it in the New Testament. 
And in Malachi chapter 3, we find that when Jesus appears, when God shows up in the person of the Son, the Lord is going to engage in the careful, deliberate work of purifying his people from their sins. Verse 2, he is like a refiner's fire. He is like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Do you realize that this is far more gracious than the people had a right to expect? Here they are breathing out blasphemy and accusation against the God of justice, charging God with turning a blind eye to sin. And instead of condemning his people with a single word, he promises that the Son is coming to treat them as something precious, something to be preserved. He's going to sit over them like gold and silver. He's going to pour over them and work in them and perfect His plans in them. Don't miss the blessing of these verses. It sounds like punishment. It sounds like pain. The, the image of fire speaks of a burning off of the, of the dross, the impurities that plague God's people. But the intention here is not destruction, but deliverance. The image of the refiner's fire is a pretty familiar one. If you've been around the Bible, you've seen it. You see it in a few different contexts. It also shares a lot in common with some of the other pictures that we find in Scripture about the God who cleanses and shapes and purifies and prunes his people. This is something that we find. This is who God is. This is what he does. The Lord is like the potter who molds the clay as he sees fit. The Lord is like the vine dresser who prunes us so that we would become more productive. Our God is a loving Father who disciplines us like children who actually belong to the family. Our Savior is the groom who washes us to present us like a bride without wrinkle. You know, in order to do all those things, the weeds have to be pulled up by the roots. And the stain has to be scrubbed from the garment. And the dross has to be melted away by the heat of God's furnace. And almost always that means affliction. Almost always that means suffering for God's people. Almost always it means hardship in the body. While we learn the lesson that merely expecting God to change our circumstances is expecting far too little from the God of justice. Oh, but on the other side of those fires, God's perfect work will be seen in a people who are purified. And more than that, a people who are pleasing in God's sight. So verse 1 promised that the Lord is coming. Verses 2 and 3 told us about the work that he's going to do. And verse 4 shows us the result of all the cleansing grace in his people. The Lord says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. That seems like a very small thing from where you're reading. Consider the fact that this is the answer to basically every problem that the prophet Malachi has raised up to this point. We won't take the time to, to rehash the entire book. You can read it for yourself in about 20 minutes this afternoon. 
But over and over again, Malachi has used the picture of disordered worship and a ruptured relationship between God and his people. The fact that they can't come near and aren't coming near aright because there's something separating God and the people he has called to himself. The book began by Malachi talking about a God who loves his people, but his people just don't get it. He went on to judge the priests and the Levites because they're bringing wrong worship, wrong sacrifices. They're contaminating God's altar by the very offerings that they put upon it. He went on to speak about the people who who wept and moaned over the altar of God, and yet their offerings were not accepted because their hands were full of sin. Over and over in Malachi, polluted worship is the hallmark of a people in rebellion against their Lord. And now God says that he's going to do away with all that. He says he's going to refine the priests. He's going to cleanse the people. He's going to remove the sin that sullies their souls. And he will make their worship pleasing to him. This is unmistakably the ministry of Jesus for his church. It's true that he refines us, little by little, through our suffering, through our afflictions, through the hardships that we face. It's true that he progressively sanctifies us, making us to to take on more and more the image of Christ as his Holy Spirit works in us and gives us that strength and power to work at the salvation that he's working in us. It's true that he changes us incrementally as his people, but if he had not made us acceptable to God in the first place, if he had not made us pleasing in his sight, all those incremental changes are for nothing. Think about it. So what if when you became a Christian, you became a bit more loving, just a trifle more forgiving, So what if when you became a Christian, uh, you began to become maybe three more degrees patient and, and kinder to the people around you? So what if reading the Bible gives you words of wisdom and comforting thoughts to share with people around you? Can you imagine what you would have if you were given all of the outward daily virtues of the victorious Christian life and yet you were not made acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God first and foremost? Can you imagine what you would have if you had, in the words of Paul, all knowledge and all insight and all faith to move mountains, yet you could not stand before the Lord and be accepted? What would be left? What blessing could you claim if the Lord made you pure but not pleasing? But the Lord does not work by half measures. God sent his son to purify in order to present his people to himself in holiness. So the New Testament tells us that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It does not say that in him we might go back to square one. It does not say that in him we might be tabula rasa, a blank slate, do with it what you will. He cleanses you and then sets you out on your own to make up the rest of it. It says that in him we become the righteousness of God. In other words, God cleanses his people not only by affliction, but also by atonement. He purifies his children. He cleanses sinners through the work of a sacrifice in their 
in their place. So when John the Baptist came to prepare the way, he pointed to Jesus. He identified the messenger of the covenant, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He comes like a refiner's fire. He comes like a fuller's soap. And when the Father sends the Son into the world, he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they may become white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they may become like wool. Dear friend, if you have never been washed by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, if you are still in your sins, and I'm not just speaking to the adults, children, young people, If you have never been washed by the cleansing power of Jesus Christ, you can be made pure today. Only trust in him. Only believe that he was crucified for your sins, that he was raised again for your salvation. Only ask that he would give you life and life eternal in his name. He will make you spotless and pure. And pleasing in his sight, there is a grace of cleansing here. And we find it fulfilled in our Savior. Now, as tempting as it is to close on that note, there is one final word in this passage for God's people. Now, in the face of of the sin of distrust, God promised the grace of cleansing. In the person of Jesus, God promised to come and deal with sin in a way that is far better than we ever could imagine. But he also warns that for those who do not fear him, his coming will be far worse than they might have expected. So verse 5, the Lord speaks the promise of judgment. The promise of judgment, verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I think there are two questions that we need to ask about this verse. The first question is, who will receive this judgment that God is speaking about? And the second question is, when will this judgment happen? To the first question. Who will receive the judgment that God is speaking about? The answer is sinners of all kinds, of every class imaginable. You know, we tend to to, to sometimes uh, think of sin in terms of categories. We tend to construct in our minds a sort of taxonomy of iniquity, and they range in our minds from the heinous to the overlookable. We tend to to put them together in groupings because when we put them together in groupings, uh, it's easier to distance ourselves from them. If we can have a nice, neat little box where we can put this category of sin that I've never engaged in, well, that's a way that we can say that has nothing to do with me. There's a sense in which verse 5 gives us several categories for sin. Verse 5 talks about religious sins, and it talks about sexual sins, and it talks about social sins, and it talks about moral sins. It shows us some of the kinds of sinners that we think of when we think of the dictionary definition of that word. What's a sinner look like? Well, an adulterer, or a sorcerer, 
or a perjurer or all these things, and we get these categories in our mind. And again, if we can mentally package up that certain type of sinner, that moral defect, that we can associate it with some other group, we can tell ourselves that we don't have a problem with sin the way those people have a problem with sin. And there's a word for that behavior. The word for that behavior is hypocrisy. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. You see the Pharisee prayed in categories, didn't he? Neat little classes of sinners who looked much different than he did. Yet how often do we read that passage and we quietly pray to ourselves, Lord, I thank you I'm not like that Pharisee. Now God cuts through all that. Verse 5 is a direct answer to the question the people were asking in verse 17. They said, where is the God of justice? The Hebrew word is mishpat. Where is the God of Mishpat, of justice, it's the exact same word that shows up as judgment in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for Mishpat. You want justice, the Lord asks. Do you really think that when justice falls, you will remain untouched? Justice comes on all kinds of sinners. Every type and every class imaginable. When the Lord comes in judgment, the sinner who deals in sexual perversion will be precisely as guilty as the sinner who takes advantage of refugees and immigrants. That is the word that we could roughly translate into our society for sojourner. Those who show up and have uh, no rights of their own, no advocates for themselves. When God shows up in judgment, the liar will be just as guilty as the thief. That's what God says. He will be a swift witness against the adulterer and against those who thrust aside the sojourner. He will bring judgment on those who swear falsely and on those who oppress the widow. And it means that the Lord is not impressed by our categorization of sin. He is not thrown off the trail by our attempts to say that our problems aren't as bad as other problems because our problems don't look like those over there. When the Lord comes in judgment, the question will be, do you fear him? Do you think that you can put God's lordship on trial? Or do you bow the knee and ask for mercy? So this first question, who will receive this judgment when the Lord appears? The answer is all kinds. Big fat sinners and little white liars and everyone in between. Everyone who refuses to trust and the cleansing Christ who came in the name of the Father. And then we have this second question. I think this one's a little harder to nail down. The question is, when will this judgment happen? The Lord says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. It seems logically connected to what has come before, maybe after, but when? A simplistic approach would be to divide this between the first and second coming of Christ. To say that when Jesus came the first time, He came for salvation, and when he comes back the second time, that's when he'll come for judgment. And there is some truth in that approach, but I think far better to realize that when Jesus came in the flesh the first time, he began a process of salvation and judgment, a process that carries through to the end of days. And those things happen at the same time. This is John's witness of Jesus, Luke chapter 3, verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand. 
to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's separation that's happening and it happens at the same time. Salvation and judgment. It was Jesus' message concerning himself. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, Jesus came as a refiner, like fuller's soap, like a refiner's fire. He came with a ministry of separation. And right now, at this very moment, as the word of God is being preached, that ministry of separation is continuing. Those who believe are being saved, and those who do not believe are condemned already. And the wheat is being gathered, and so is the chaff. And it's already happening. And when Jesus returns, that process will be all but over. And that means that the only question that remains to be asked is, what are you expecting on that day? Are you expecting to escape God's judgment because your sin looks cleaner than the person sitting next to you? Are you expecting that when judgment shows up, he will wink at your wickedness when he comes to judge the secrets of men? Or do you expect that Christ will be far more gracious than you ever could have imagined? That he has done for you what you cannot do for yourself? That is the only expectation that will never let you down. The only one that will be met far beyond your wildest dreams and imaginations. Dear Christian, if your hope for the day of judgment is Christ, and his work for you, you will find, as his people always do, that his grace is far better than you ever could have thought. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that through it you would be doing a cleansing work among your people. We thank you for the division that you work through Christ and the preaching of his word. We pray that you would divide us, even your people, the sword and spirit, down to the very bone and marrow. Show us our great need for you. Show us your great provision in Christ. Cleanse us of every kind of impurity and sin. There are people here today who have not yet trusted in you. We ask that you would give faith. We ask that you would give life and forgiveness. We ask that you would cleanse from impurity and make us pleasing in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.